0: Good evening, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the podcast where comics and politics meet. This is the show for people who knew as soon as Foggy declared he was running for district attorney that it had to be a write-in campaign because petitioning season had long been over in New York. Uh, This is the comics podcast where we talk about Daredevil and season three, not just the aesthetics, but also the politics not just the easter eggs in fact really not much about the easter eggs generally at all but mostly focused on the content and with me today is a guest who i'm excited to have because he in our just offhand conversation about the show brought a whole new level of knowledge to how the show talks about things like the fbi a thing i don't know a great deal about um that i hadn't really seen elsewhere in daredevil coverage so i want to Thank our our listeners for being patient enough uh, to wait for me to actually have a chance to finish up on the show, had kind of a busy election season. Um, And you'll you'll be rewarded by the additional presence of Spencer Ackerman, senior national security correspondent for The Daily Beast uh, and a lifelong comics fan and New Yorker. uh, wearing doing double duty there and a journalist and an expert on national security like you have a lot of hats spencer that actually make you the perfect guest for this episode <laughs> and
1: no pressure with that intro a lot huh?
0: no pressure it's fine i mean you have been on our show to talk about daredevil before so indeed so season three um when it came up i, I you know i hadn't actually gotten around to watching luke cage season two uh, luke cage season one i adored luke cage season but it kind of had a downhill trajectory and then as soon as my friends who are critics began giving season two uh less than exemplary reviews i was like ah, maybe i'll watch it later i don't know but i knew i would have i would have to watch the dreadful season three that was just a, for a foregone conclusion um and when i was getting into it, my brother came said told me that he thought this season was relentlessly dark in ways that made him kind of like telling me that I should not bother watching it. I was like, "Well, is it bad?" And he mm. said, "No, it's not bad. It is relentlessly dark, and I don't know if you should bother watching it," which was really like a stunning assessment. Like, my brother is like a hardcore Marvel fanboy, um, so uh, I, I guess going into it, uh, I, you know, I didn't watch any of the trailers. I didn't even realize that this was going to be the, the bullseye season until. I mean, the second we freaking saw, I knew. Mm. I knew. And I was also excited. But I, I came into it with some pretty low expectations. Um, was not happy with The Season 2, if folks recall. I feel like it turned into The Punisher show in ways yeah. that were highly politically suspect and made me irritated. And obviously, Elektra was terrible, even though the actress was great. Um, and I, I... Did you watch The Defenders?
1: Sort of. Um, <laughs> did anyone
0: I, really? <laughs>
1: it, it has its. It has its... I'm so sorry. It has its defenders. No. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's the first one of these shows to recognize that if it only has eight episodes of story to tell, just tell it in eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do kind of feel that every single Netflix Marvel show with, with, with I think, the exception of Jessica Jones season one um, mm-hmm. has made this mistake like they they just they all feel over long and at least I defenders think Daredevil didn't. season
0: one might have been I think Daredevil season one might have been okay too but it's been a long time um I've, I've yeah, re- wa- I've re-
1: no I think you you may, you may be right you may be right like they I, I've, re- I've definitely rewatched that season and found like yeah every time I see this one I like it whereas like Jessica Jones is an, is a fantastic first season but I can't watch it again
0: Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Um, and for listeners who are wondering I see what your when brother the show means.
0: will cover Jessica. yeah yeah and for and for listeners who are wondering when our show might cover jessica jones season two the eight we will not because I, I wish i had that time back like i would like to reclaim the time of my loss that was lost to jessica jones season two um but daredevil's but daredevil season three i'm glad i watched i have lots of thoughts about it um i don't think I can ever quite reclaim the level of enthusiasm excitement I had when I, the series first began because there had been nothing like it. But mm-hmm. season three, really great television, really great show. What's your top line on it?
1: I, I have lots of, of, of subheads and I don't have a headline for, for season three. <laughs> like there, there are things in this season that are just straight up exquisite. Uh, Bullseye is exquisite. That that is exactly yep. how you make that character truly terrifying. Um, Kingpin is exquisite, like that. What just everything you know, Vince D'Onofrio is in. He's he's going to be incredible in. But does he ever inhabit that character and give Fisk this relentlessness that's also excellently matched with this subtle arc that he starts? Um, in the very beginning, and I love the way the directors uh constantly call back uh, to fisk with the painting um, to the mm-hmm. point where it's where it 's a minor plot point um,
0: yeah, visually there's so much happening i'm so uh, this season, as in past ones, when they have Kingpin, they like to do these shots where it 's just this big hulking figure in front of a flat wall, and you really get the sense of the scale of him as a figure. And also his isolation. And also he kind of operates like modern art himself. He's like this almost abstracted human form Mm. because he's so large and round on this flat background. And, you know, when we see him first in the beginning of the season, he is in the orange prisoner jumpsuit against the gray wall. And he's imagining, you know, what his other reality he's living could be. Like he's still putting himself back in his omelet making heaven <laughs> of his beautiful morning routine, but that's not where he is. And color is such a huge thing with this show. But um, you know, Kingpin goes through this color journey. Like he's in the orange and, and, and gray. He's like tainted, he's dirty. And then he moves over as he is able to shift his freedom um situation. He gets he starts to become black and white, more of a dignified outfit. And then next step he's the white and black which is sort of the classic cling pin outfit. And then he ultimately transcends into this all white outfit, which aligns him most closely with his sense of like purity, wanting to keep his hands like that. He, you know, he, he has this whole this whole thing with like what parts of his criminality does Vanessa have mm-hmm. access to and not? Um, and him deciding that he is actually untouchable and spotless no matter what he does, like no matter how dirty he is, he is white and pristine and it connects him back to the painting rabbit in the snow that yeah that you brought up as this object of desire and connection for him and vanessa um so you know visually what the show is doing with kingpin throughout the season and generally what the show's doing with colors this season i think is really artistically significant so i mean season three we get the famous daredevil born again story frank miller dave masucelli like some of the most classicist of classic bronze age comics um i actually did not reread it in preparation for this but I have read it, and yeah, it's uh, ridiculously um, connected to the the story that we're being told here. And
1: even down to, like, the iconic shots that Miller and Mazzuccelli give, like, famously, the, uh, the splash pages of all of those issues are of Matt sweeping in increasingly, you know, disturbed uh and and destitute circumstances and you know at one point you see matt like curl up among the garbage outside in a blue puffer coat
0: yeah and the pieta sort of yeah there's so much catholic imagery and really like daredevil like his colors are black and red there is so much red light because of the stained glass which really is not actually enough stained glass to justify things being red it's an artistic choice and um there's so much of him just being bathed in this red light in the church basement, and it's so claustrophobic and so dark, and yeah. those are just really the dominant colors for the comics as well. Uh, I think it's interesting that we have Daredevil is black and red, and meanwhile, like our villain, uh, Wilson Fisk, is white, and he wants to see himself as being clean and right, and Daredevil is, in the meantime, like living his life as what he believes to be his worst self, in a way, and really reveling in the self-loathing Of that and his distorted sense of self in a different direction entirely.
1: Among the things that I came away from this season wondering is like, do I just hate this character?
0: Yes. You mean Daredevil?
1: Yeah, I mean Daredevil. I mean like... Oh, yes. The... 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 The the Met just... However much you've sort of dealt with this, you know, relentlessly egocentrical you know, interpretation of events that, you know, forms this like guilt-based code that he has that allows him to justify all of this, you know, terrible and hypocritical behavior. Like the show does, I think a pretty admirable job of basically like showing both like Karen and Foggy recognizing that they're far better off without this person in their lives.
0: But that they don't want to let that happen because they care too much. Yeah.
1: And like that elevates their characters in a way that like had sort of been a trap that previous seasons had sprung and or, you know, an opportunity presented. I'm glad they took that direction. Um, I thought the episode on Karen was both really moving and also like of like a great relief that that was the most like they went um with you know a story that's based in some ways on on the born again storyline that you mentioned which has just like the less said about the treatment of karen page in that comic the better
0: yeah yeah i I, you know i want to shout out writer tamara beecher wilkinson for writing the karen episode like when i saw there was an episode called karen i said please let this be written by a woman and it was Mm. and it paid off um it was a very complicated story to tell i loved how like completely believable and common so many of the pieces of it would be um the struggle she was facing and we finally really get to understand where she's coming from and all of it felt completely in line with the character we've seen today her acting of course is amazing um really a masterful episode one of the best of the seas of the series and and the um but, you know, like, yeah, like, I I, I want to also think back about the whole thing about this being Daredevil born again, which is like, this is, you know, Matt, m- one of the reasons that Matt Murdock is so insufferable is that he's this, like, Christ figure in his own mind, and he's doing it in ways that implicate other people. Like, I love Daredevil comics, Um and I also say that Daredevil is the worst boyfriend in comics. No boyfriend is as bad of a boyfriend as mm-hmm. fucking Matt Murdock. Um, but, like, this you know, he begins the series, like he's coming back from the dead, right? Like he, he, we thought he died, or I guess anybody who bothered to watch defenders and I didn't thought he died underneath the building. He's coming back to life. He's being resurrected. He's in the cave, right? He's like literally underneath the rubble and he's hidden in the cave out of it for a few, was it three months? I don't know. Is the three months stand in for three days? It's a Christ metaphor. Um, and then he comes back, but he's not truly fully connected to himself. He, he's back physically, but he's not back spiritually, right? And then by the end of the season, he is himself again. He is he is truly returned. Um, and he the only way he was able to do that was by truly asking for redemption and truly um, going to the process of confession that he was wrong and, and welcoming his friends back and existing as a member of the community again. There's so much Catholic stuff this season, more than I think there had been in in prior seasons and it makes sense it's situated in the church we get father latim all the time we get matt's mom drumroll the mm. nun who's fabulous um but yeah so like you know matt murdoch is this guy who's like living out his own christ fantasy delusion on everyone else um that's a hard uh hard friend to have there and
1: and, and for what right to give himself the license to you know betray his professional oath uh you know and, and, you know, hurt people um, and portray himself as being, you know, the upholder of, of justice in what looks like fundamentally, you know, a delusional um, and, you know, sick kind of pleasure-seeking uh, enterprise. Um, I found that they kind of flirted with the one defensible interpretation of, of this behavior. Which is where, and I take it because you mentioned the thing about his mom that, like, we're, we're spoiling this whole thing. Oh, yes. Okay. So in the, I think it's either the last or the second to last episode when, you know, he's wearing the Daredevil Man, Man Without Fear, you know, black Muay Thai ropes, you know, outfit with Foggy and Karen. Where his critique is like, I can justify doing this you know, against, you know, Foggy's um, objections because some people are just too rich and powerful and they make a mockery of the law and power exists in such a way that uh, the law is puny compared to it. And mm-hmm. Foggy isn't prepared to let go of that, to let go of the, you know, the majesty of the law shit. This is, you know, entirely an argument between, you know, suddenly a leftist and a liberal. And yeah. I, side with, I side with Matt. Um, But like, if you're going to make that, you know, what Daredevil is going forward, I expect you to live up to that. Mm. Like, you know, are we going to now see like white collar crime Daredevil? Right, yeah, he like, not know like, what
0: to do about that. You know, Matt and F- Foggy and Karen actually would be very great at, and have done great work combating white collar crime. Actually, Daredevil does not seem to have the stamina, right. to, to do that.
1: Well, the only thing that I like wholeheartedly loved in season two of Daredevil um, was that, like, they made it really clear that, like, no, in fact, Matt is a terrible lawyer. He's a, he's an awful lawyer. He's an awful partner. You couldn't prepare yourself for, for you know, important legal cases when you're going out every night and giving yourself a concussion. Like, it's insane that this character is, is constantly thought of as, like, this brilliant legal mind. Like, like that's less realistic than him being Daredevil.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And, you know, I appreciate that, like, if they think, you know, they really have... You know, a way of you know redeeming this character and you know giving some kind of chrysalis because you know if you just do a story like Born Again without like making the character appreciably different than when you know he began, it's a cheap thing to do. Um,
0: do I've, you feel like that's true? Like he's is he appreciably different now?
1: I don't. I don't really know. Um, I Me either. Yeah. So that that's kind of spoiling my you know my top line appreciation for the show um there were a number of things that so like you know i want to see uh i think i called him on twitter once robes pierre devil <laughs> like like i if he's really going to take that critique and like go after like the real like you know power brokers you know isn't that that's something that the show you know ought to you know take seriously if it's going to you know, at least flirt with that critique and put it in the protagonist's mouth. hmm There were some things in here that just, like, as a reporter, I really love but are so parochial that, like, I don't expect, you know, anyone else to, to really care about. But, like...
0: Hit me. Yeah.
1: So, you know, any reporter, you know, has, like, real relationships with lawyers. Like, lawyers are phenomenal sources uh you 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 hire lawyers to protect you from getting sued and so forth. And like, I've always loved seeing like first like between Ben Urich and Nelson and Murdoch, and now between like Karen Page and foggy Nelson, this like the, the the you know, the grand alliance between between you know hacks and and ambulance chasers. And I, I really do love that. <laughs> um, mm. I love that Karen has a shitty editor.
0: Yeah, um, it's complicated, right? Like he like I feel like we're supposed to think he's so great, even though he's the person who sold out Ben Yurik back in the time.
1: A lot of I feel so seen.
0: <laughs> like And and the actor is really doing a great job, but it's also like he that that's his performance. But he's also a little bit weaselly, like but that's also, you know, again, I, I think on purpose. So
1: like um, a couple things here. First, he's constantly nagging Karen. Like, why have you hired this person? And and not allowed her to do her job. And if you've had that question, that probably means you haven't worked for a lot of editors. I have seen, in my own experience, overwhelmingly uh to women colleagues, uh yeah. reporters who are brought on board by male uh editors who proceed to like refuse to let them, you know, do the job that they want to do that they're expert in doing and that they were hired to do um and and told to just kind of do other stuff um tacitly or explicitly so like whether they realize it or not they got that relationship very right um uh and of course i've worked for great editors too uh and this guy Mm -hmm. uh very much is not one of them he he negs karen um at one point it seems like he redeems himself um by, by saying like you were right to make me go after Fisk and like you think like oh wow we're actually going to see an arc for this guy but then like he flips out on Karen um, after the shooting when like the thing that a good editor has to do in that circumstance um, is figure out the way to both support the reporter and get the story. You don't like just demand an ultimatum after an experience like this um from someone um if you know the real the, the sorry the real uh the ben Yurick in the comics like particularly during bendis's daredevil run is like one of the most unethical reporters there is like yorick explicitly mm. lies to j jonah jameson about not knowing daredevil's identity and then sabotages a true story in the bugle reporting that Matt Murdoch is Daredevil. Fuck that guy. Like whatever your reasons yeah. are. Like that just absolutely not. Like you 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 wouldn't should be driven from the profession for behaving this way. Um he's not quite, you know, this guy whose name I'm um, Ellison? I think he's Ellison. Yeah, he's not quite that bad, but 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 he sucks. He's terrible. Get him out of there. Um you know, it has only been a couple months since a madman shot up the Annapolis Courier. And this show put on uh, a shooting massacre in a newsroom that was, like, that was hard to watch.
0: Yeah, I, I, I thought that they did a really good job of, like, the actual filming of that as a fight scene. But then I felt like the show didn't address how ridiculously irresponsible was for Karen to set that up in the first place the way she did. And then this, I felt like the city didn't adequate, wasn't adequate, wasn't as traumatized by that experience as it would have been. Like, you know, I don't live in Annapolis, so I can't say like, well, when there was a newsroom shooting in my city, XYZ happened. But like, And, and, you know, we are at a period right now where there's so many people getting shot in mass shootings that, like, the media doesn't even report it seriously anymore because there's another, like, white person flipping their shit and killing people every day of the week. But I still felt like a newsroom shooting of the New York Daily News, which is basically what that paper is, would have been a bigger deal in the city than that.
1: I mean, it would have – yes. It would have been uh, a seminal tragedy in the history of the city it would be remembered yeah. forever um and and justly so and you know i'm not saying the show shouldn't have done it um i recognize that i have you know uh, uh, as i preface this conversation by saying you know a parochial lens through which i'm viewing this um but it was a jarring thing to see um so soon and as you you know allude to if you're gonna do it you know you have to really address it like this has to become, you know, really, really crucial. And it seems like by the time we get to, you know, the scenes where they're they're, you know, fighting it out in the church that like this is just sort of a thing that's happened. The it's It, it feels like a plot contrivance to kind of strip everything away from Karen um, in a way that like mirrors how, you know, things are being stripped away from Matt.
0: Mm yeah yeah um there definitely was a you know a very like clear political show in the most straightforward way like we have you know uh fisk rocking around talking about the fake news yeah like literally straight up saying it there being a lot of trump parallels with him in his attempt to try to have social approval for insane things um, foggy runs for office I, as someone who worked <laughs> in New York politics for a, a long time I was like okay I'm glad they realized that this would have to be a write-in campaign um, the union actually would not be able to endorse him because their endorsement would have already been given to someone else um, you're, if you're showing up at a political club's dinner without like that political club dinner is way fancier than any political club dinner that I have ever witnessed in the history of New York political work maybe it's because I don't Go to certain kinds of political clubs, <laughs> But I'm like, that's pretty fancy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, like, you know, Foggy's quixotic write-in campaign for district attorney as a way to like put pressure on the candidate, like running to the running on a specific issue to elevate it, like that is a tactic people do, and that does work. So, um, I, I thought that that was an interesting uh, inclusion for the season.
1: What I loved about it. Uh, two things. The first thing again parochially, uh there's a there's just a wonderful conversation uh that's very true about, you know, how uh the journalistic coverage sausage is made, in which like Foggy is running through his plan uh to accuse Fisk of the things that you know he thinks he's discovered from Marcy's brief about what Fisk is really up to here. And mm. He was like, and and he's saying to Karen, and you're going to write about it. And Karen's like, I I can't do that. Like, this is a lot of unsubstantiated information. Uh, I don't really know how I'd go about confirming this stuff. I don't know how I could convince my editor to run this. And he says, but I can make unsubstantiated allegations. And if I'm a candidate for office, it's news. And he's right. Like, that happens absolutely all the time. And I, I loved how, like, at its best, like, this show can kind of, like, demonstrate uh, creative ways to exploit the fundamental cynicism of how, like, machine politics in a place like New York exists for, like, avarice and immiseration. And, you know, the the, the, the good guys in the story can um, figure out ways to leverage that at times.
0: This show is about lawyers, cops, and the FBI. Like, yes. that's who this is about most of all. Um I mean, what are your thoughts about? We obviously we see lots of suicide by cops, suicide by FBI, and attempted suicide by criminal throughout this uh, this season. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was really curious. Like you sort of began a conversation with me talking about the FBI and like the FBI and how it's covered in this in this series.
1: Yeah. So the the main way we get into the FBI here is through this hapless but fundamentally good character of Ray nadim a special agent in the new york fbi Mm -hmm. and it's you know nadim's belief that he can leverage fisk uh into informing on uh, uh an albanian mafia crew uh that that sets you know this chain of events in motion and nadim is one of them and another member of his team uh who turns out to be bullseye uh, and is first manipulated and then kind of um, cultivated uh, by Fisk, um, you know, come comes into being. And we get, like, the the dynamic with them after, like, Nadim realizes too late that, like, he is, you know, a pawn in, in Fisk's scheme rather than the other way around. And, yeah. you know, the power really operates with this guy. And, you know, he's, you know the guy trying to do the right thing in an increasingly impossible situation that he got himself into and ultimately he accepts responsibility for so the thing about Raina deem that really stands out as an FBI agent is that he's not white and the reason why I bring this up is because of two reasons one between this um I I've never watched it, but um, you know the there's some like uh, I think ABC or CBS show Quantico that has uh, a non-white woman in like its own lead special agent you know role. Um, very often, you know these characters like like Raina Dean here is supposed to be you know the conscience of the FBI um, in uh, in in these you know different. You know, circumstances. And it's uncomfortable the way that the FBI, which is an overwhelmingly white organization, particularly at the special agent level, um, has through pop culture portrayed itself as vastly more diverse than it in fact is. Uh, in a 2016 uh, FBI employee survey, of FBI special agents, like the people who do, like, the real power stuff at the the FBI, the place where, like, the institutional power dynamics, you know, favor. This is about investigations and making cases, um, and it's special agents who do that, and everyone else is in kind of a support role. If this were the Night's Watch, these guys are the Rangers. 82% Mm -hmm. of them as of uh, 2016 are white. Uh, the FBI isn't just white. it's it's a very, it's very particular kinds of white. It's Catholic and it's Mormon. And this has been just so fundamental to how the FBI you know is in current and has operated um, at times, you know while it has investigated at times and even in, in the 1960s deserves credit, For helping break the uh, Ku Klux Klan uh, during its 60s resurgence has been throughout its history, very white supremacist proximate. Mm -hmm.
0: um,
1: In in really scary ways, the FBI has such a problem with being white that James Comey had to give like public speeches addressing it and saying, like, we recognize that this is a a major problem. Comey used to give you know speeches um in which he would say that like he keeps uh the uh the blackmail letter the FBI sent to Martin Luther King on his desk as a reminder for how like the FBI can go astray and how much power it possesses and so forth you know nevertheless the guy writes in his memoir a whole lot of all lives matter and blue lives matter bullshit
0: oh of course
1: so like it it You know, this is just sort of where the FBI is coming from. And sort of with that background, seeing like the good guy within the FBI, um, you know, basically portrayed as like the non-white hair shirt for this white organization just gets more and more uncomfortable. Um, It is good that popular fiction recognizes that it ought to be more uh, attentive to non-white narratives uh, in its stories, and and, and that has to be encouraged. It is similar, you know, similarly to be encouraged um, that you would want to put non-white people in lead and however flawed, fundamentally heroic roles without question. But it's worth considering when portraying an organization fictionally that is necessarily going to have uh, overtones for a political statement that you consider whether that role obscures more than it reveals about the organization being portrayed. And I would argue that this portrayal does that with the FBI and lets the FBI off the hook uh, yeah. in an important way.
0: So many other representations in Marvel and pop culture in general do that. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so thank you for that bit of analysis on there, because I just hadn't seen people acknowledging that. I mean, one thing that I also thought was significant with Ray was his New York accent, which largely was present. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think the actor did a great job. Um, and like, it, it's important to sort of establish like, yeah, like this is like a real New Yorker, uh, or New I, my, uh, some people have said that they're sure he's from New Jersey. Like, I understand that particular analysis as well. But, I thought um, he was
1: from, like, the, the 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 Indian parts of Queens.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I assumed. <laughs> but somebody else I was talking to was like, no, like, that house totally looks like, all, like everybody else's house in, in this part of New Jersey. And obviously hmm. New Jersey's got a ton of people who are Indian American as well. But yeah, I assumed it was Queens. Uh, but that, you know, like, I'm really glad to see, like, the show. I thought the show did a really like cool job of situating like who he was, building him as a character, like what he was trying to do for his family, and um, like he has someone who wants to be the hero and be seen as a hero, and I had actually been manipulated the whole time. Um, but yeah, I think he was a really great character. Uh, his death, like wow, like talking about. I mean, the show really has a particular catholic analysis of the role of redemption Mm -hmm. uh how you have to come clean like you have to confess to your sins in order to be redeemed and like you know when and matt does this to 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 nadine when he's like taking him on as a client like he he talks to him before he has him speak to the attorney general and like make sure that this contrition is real and like that he understands what he did was wrong and why before he says, "Okay, now you're ready to go talk to the law, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and when a dean like then does this other confessional, where he also is his is like the lying like his last will and testament video, which becomes the, his final words. I forget what the word of it is, but you know, like the dying thing he says is is, is considered uh, a more heavily weighted testimony. Yeah, um, and so he is sacrificing himself. He gets shot into a grave by in, sort of in a semi-Christ-like pose, like with his arms out. Um, and, uh, and it's that final testimony, which is what's able to actually, the sacrifice This was actually able to put Fisk away again, um, but that he had to like ask for forgiveness first it's like it's and, and we are, and we have this all playing out on a character who i thought maybe at first might have been christian i don't freaking know but then is clear from his wedding photographs and his conversation with his wife near the end of their of uh, that piece that like he's you know he's he's definitely not um but i thought that it was it's a it's an interesting place to then see this like character being written into all the catholic uh, mythology of the show
1: yeah, I don't really see how you do the show without um having it really be as
0: Catholic as, as the comic is. Like I mean that's th- who he is. Yeah. It's not Daredevil otherwise. It's
1: it's just sort of, you know, the the themes that go with um with everything about the character and you know, in important ways. Like isn't Daredevil like the first Catholic superhero?
0: Yes. Where that's actually like text and not just like inferring that
1: right where like religion plays you know more of a role in his life and his motivations than i think any other superhero character yeah. um like or, or at least for a very long time yeah like kind of unique in those silver age creations i think wonder woman yeah. maybe but
0: oh that's interesting yeah but that's, that's an invented Origin. Yeah, exa-
1: yeah, but like I mean, it's still like part of her character. You know, I guess not in the same way. Um, yeah, I don't know. You, you, it would it would not feel like Daredevil if it were not, you know, big C and small C Catholic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it invited in a more diverse array of people into that story. They had some amazing um, shots too, of
1: like, you know, I think in, particularly in like the the second to last or the season finale where it's. It's Daredevil, you know, right underneath the cross, on you know, po- you mm-hmm. know, looming out from the from the top of the church.
0: I mean, he and Karen climb out of a casket together. Yeah,
1: wow, that was something. Like
0: literally, right. Um, I want to talk a bit about the art this season because I one of the things I do love about Daredevil is it's a show that understands and values modern art, <laughs> um, in a way that like I don't really think I've seen other kind of pop like mass audience. TV shows really do, um, you know, like, I, you know, the centrality of the painting Rabbit in the Snow, b- that being brought back this season, of course, makes a lot of sense. And I, I want to talk about, like, the Nazi stolen art in a minute. But but the yeah. thing is, even prior to that painting, even prior to that painting being a plot point, like, in Fisk's apartment in his new fancied pad, um, he has decorated it with, like, really top-of-line art from like the abstract expressionist art that's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars per painting um and the art that is being state that is decorating the set is like in- rec- includes things that are re- recognizable work by artists like it's not like a literally a de Kooning painting but like it it is and then there's this one particular fight scene where he like literally sm- like that one when they finally have the big fight scene in the end of the season in his apartment uh then you see like this one Rothko get just scratched on this guy's head and I was just like well that's one Rothko that'll never menace society again (laughs) um but it's like they're doing like direct parodies of specific modern art paintings um I didn't know that yeah yeah so that's a lot of thought being put in there and I, I appreciate that um it's just being including it and making people think about it and about the meaning of these paintings. Um, but onto the Nazi stolen art, I actually had to like double check the math because I really feel like 43 is too late, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This really stood out for me. Like what we're talking about, um, is, uh, there's this scene in which, um, Fisk is trying to buy back, Rabbit in a snowstorm, the painting that he bought from his beloved Vanessa, uh, and which you know calms him and both reminds him of the the wall in his old apartment where he you know against which with his hammer he beat his father's uh, you know head in until he died. Um, apparently, we learn uh, this was uh, st- aren't stolen by the Nazis from this family, uh, amongst whom the only survivors is now you know very uh um relieved in her soul to have you know restored ownership Mm -hmm. over this you know stolen painting um and she mentions at one point that the nazis came to take this from her family in 1943 and i was immediately taken out of the scene
0: it's like if,
1: if no that would have happened in the 30s like if you if if you were a wealthy jewish family uh you didn't make it till till 43 before you, you, you had your stuff confiscated. That's two years into the final solution.
0: Yeah, so there was that math. And then meanwhile, I'm looking at it and saying, that particular white on white painting doesn't look pre-war to me. What I mean by that is that, well, there are white on white paintings that could have been owned by a German Jewish family prior to World War II. Uh, paintings like Suprematist Composition White on White, which Russian painter Kazimir Malvich made in 1918, right after the revolution, Rabbit in the Snow does not look like a suprematist painting. Rabbit in the Snow is really wild and textured. I, I think the historic paintings that it does most closely resemble are Robert Ryman's work from the 1960s and 1980s. So unless there's time travelers, that is not the right abstract painting. Uh, I welcome someone else <laughs> who knows more about modern art to tell me I'm wrong.
1: I wish I had I anything actually... to contribute.
0: I don't actually run into and I've increasingly realized, I increasingly realize I don't run into that many people in comics who know anything about modern art so I'm here to pretend like I'm the expert because nobody else has said anything Seriously so folks this has come up before you know I studied modern art as an undergrad and I've worked in art galleries but I am not an art historian so if you are I would love to talk with you I have not been running into people with traditional art history backgrounds in comics and geek space and would love to have a conversation with other folks who do. But nevertheless, um, I appreciate that the show uh, asks us to care about the provenance of art and that um, it, in the, even in the painting's introduction in the first place, that it's like, what is your emotional response to this? That this isn't just something you're acquiring as, because it's valuable. And really a lot of abstract expression as art is just treated as like an object because it's expensive that rich people want. It isn't really considered as its own thing of value for itself um but anyway uh and then so you know when they when and when they bring the painting so the the whole scene between the holocaust survivor and fisk was amazing amazingly well acted scene and like you look and i was like you know this is right after we've had all of these characters get played by fisk the FBI, I yes. mean, um, you know, Nadim's boss has been outmaneuvered by Fisk. Nadim has been outmaneuvered by Fisk. The, our heroes of it, everybody's been outmaneuvered by Fisk. And the woman who puts her foot down is just no, you cannot take this, is the Holocaust survivor. Yes. And I was like, hell yes, this is important. And then when they came back and had her get killed off camera with that bloodstain I was like okay well I guess you're making a different point but in, in the moment of it there I was like yeah that's right because the whole it's the world all across I was saying I know what wolves look like and it's yes. you um, and a lot of times when people compare people to Nazis in popular culture it's bad and wrong but I was totally okay with that one in this particular concept um, I mean
1: I don't know how I feel about Daredevil you know season three killing a survivor yeah um, I and I mean that, I mean that at face value. Like I, 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 have complicated, you know, and scattered thoughts that I don't know if I, you know, need it up into, you know, a critique. Um, so I don't want to offer one extemporaneously just to say that, like, the, I, there's an aspect of that that like if that really is the the critique you're making of Wilson Fisk. I don't think Fisk is a Nazi. And like nothing in three seasons of Daredevil uh leads me to believe that like Fisk is capable that that that, that like there's it okay, so in order to to have that critique really land, like Fisk has to be engaged in a fascistic political project, I think. Like It's one thing for the survivor to say, and I love this about the scene, that, like, she sees through Fisk. Right. As you mentioned, everyone else is checkmated um, by him except the survivor who's seen avarice and cruelty. But the trouble with, like... And then Fisk, like, if, if they had ended the scene... The way it ends in, in episode eleven, I think it is the the second to last one, or twelve, I guess, in which, like mm-hmm. Fisk says, you know Vanessa would want you to have this, and that matters to me. And I don't mind get you, the... why afterwards, like, yeah, he would kill her. And... Well, he didn't, right? Oh, like, what? So what happened? Okay, so maybe I just don't okay, so, understand. So but...
0: a few, a few layers. I, I don't know if we know anything about Vanessa's heritage in the show, but the actress who plays her is Jewish, and she sounds Israeli to me. She does sound Israeli. So, like, so I, I'm going to assume that her character is supposed to be Israeli, and with that, like, in mind, um, that makes sense. That she, he would recognize that she would want her to have the continue to have the painting so what happened uh, but yeah but the... the bullseye the fucking bullseye man oh. he had been penalized like uh he, he fisk had tisk tisked him and he was feeling like he had to prove himself and he had to do something that nobody else could do so he did this freelance he did not do this at the request of fisk and vanessa oh. understands actually what happened vanessa like, sees it mm. i i At least that was my read of the actress's performance. She was like, oh, you went and got it for real. I don't know that Vanessa knows who the owner really was or the Holocaust story Mm -hmm. or any of that. But Vanessa does know that somebody got their fucking selves killed, but it was not at Fisk's request.
1: So do you think you would stand by the decision uh, to to have a Holocaust survivor killed in Daredevil Season 3?
0: no i don't really know like i'm glad it was off camera um i i do feel like your point though about like well fisk isn't fascist it's like well he's not but he has these inklings of one who could be on that path Mm -hmm. he's going around talking about the crooked media and the lying media he wants everyone to pay tribute to him like he i i think it's all like sort of baby steps on the spectrum right like
1: my problem with this is that in season one, I never felt I had a good sense of like what Fisk was selling to the public. Like, was he selling like, uh, like a crazy accelerated vision of a gentrified Hell's Kitchen? Yes, and that the, was my understanding. And like, but like, we have lived through a period in New York City in which, like, that was politically ascendant. That it had, you know, a mobilized constituency for what I think is not unfairly understood as urban class war. And mm-hmm. what if Daredevil is going to, to, to make that like the real critique of Fisk, then like, I think you need to show the degree to which like Fisk, you know, has a political constituency. That that ensures that he's going to be okay. That like
0: that are encouraging it. Yeah,
1: yeah. That like that his coming the,
0: out party, his the wedding.
1: Exactly. Like that's the reason why he's so dangerous, and the reason why that Matt thinks that he's justified in like in in killing him. That like this that that this guy really has conquered New York um, through his means, but like explicitly in Daredevil season three. He's just like a really good criminal. And that's supposed to, you know, be a kind of stand in that he's he's kind of taking over the city through fear that like a criminal enterprise is preying on all of New York when. The kind of only critique that really makes sense here that they they sort of, you know, flirt with, but I feel like never really make or never really land or never really earn is that like there's an alliance of political elites, you know, economic elites and Wilson Fisk. And like, that's what really has made the kingpin the kingpin. Instead, it's just this sort of like up from your bootstraps, you know, criminal story. Hmm. What do you think?
0: No, I, I you know, I, I think like the sort of hyper gentrification compa- campaign is like, as a form of removing people of one ethnic group and replacing them with people of another ethnic group. Um, you know, you, but you're right that like, you're not seeing the, the, the other people who are complicit in that and view it as being beneficial to them With you know, you just see a few couple moments of random gang Lords and you don't really see, Oh God, the scene where Fisk, there's protesters outside the hotel and Fisk talks them down. That was completely yeah. implausible. Like, if you're there with a sign, you're not going to slowly lower your sign when that guy's talking right. Like to you. That's, that's not, that's an not how confrontation. That's not how confrontations work. And like, it's also like
1: it's it's simultaneously a protest and a press conference. Like
0: there's lots of weird. There's things never like, that. like, like <laughs> the newspaper calls a press conference. Newspapers don't call a press conference. Yeah, that like, was insane.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. Um, yeah, that, it's just like that. That would never happen. And like some of these things, I I just sort of. I, I don't really know how how like it, it wasn't kind of researched out like you made the very good point that um you know when they decide to go down the the foggy you know runs you know for district attorney you know plotline they you know admirably you know researched enough to to figure out you know the mechanics of how this would happen at you know the point in the story that they needed to happen and i kind of don't understand given like How we're all sort of writers you know journalists and you know tv writers and comic book writers how like consistently they kind of get journalism wrong in fundamental ways like i Mm -hmm. i I hope i'm not just being like you know an asshole parochial journalist in which like all of this stuff really you know becomes really uh you know pronounced in in an obnoxious way um it's not you know it, it, it You know, it, it it's by no means just like a product of ignorance, like season five of The Wire, you know, is a bad season of television, primarily because of the focus, you know, given on to the Baltimore Sun um, in implausible ways, you know, written by David Simon and show run by David Simon, you know, a disgruntled, you know, Baltimore Sun newsroom. reporter, right? Like, yeah. it's not, you know, it's it's by no means... Who, who, you know, made one of the most, you know, brilliant pieces of television in history. Um, so it's it's by no means, you know, uh, a proximity ignorance question alone. I just, like, found it really weird that they could, you know, write themselves so well into something, you know, as obscure uh, as, a, as a foggy candidacy, um, as a write-in, but, like, not really know that, you know, it's not reporters who call press conferences
0: yeah i don't as very know, that's bad obnoxious i
1: probably sound like you know comic book guy from this no
0: it bothered me and i'm not a reporter but i've i organize press conferences though i'm on the other end of playing, <laughs> so like, that's not how that works um and yeah. it's super easy to get uh, reporters I talk to show about for press Dex...
1: conferences right
0: no 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 <laughs> mostly they just end up not coming and ugh, whatever i'm just embittered, and it's good i'm not a flack anymore so let's talk about the buzzing sound in dex's head um so you know i thought that the performance was amazing this actor just was a fabulous job they started you know near the end of the season with a sound cue where you would hear this like buzzing noise like and it was like the buzzing madness of the insects crawling around in dex's head and um i found myself kind of wondering like that sound cue should have been in there sooner man there's like no reason not to have it it was very menacing and there was an interesting moment where um when you have vanessa who going you know, finally Fisk lets her in to see like what he's really doing. And she has this amazing line about how her hands were never clean, which yes. given her dealing in Nazi, in former Nazi antiquities, you know, it's certainly a possibility, but, um, but even not, uh, but uh, when she says, you know what, you really should kill Nadim to keep us safe. We start getting the same buzzing noise coming off of her. Oh, I didn't notice so it, that. That's wonderful. Yep. The only time we had it with her, but it sort of was the idea of this like sound spreading, this sort of contagion of, of craziness. But, you know, as per usual, television does not do a great, does not do justice by people with mental health problems, um, you know. And I was like, I know they're going to say he is BPD. And of course they said he is, BPD, BPD meaning borderline personality disorder. I, I don't really know, like, between schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder have got to be the two most, like, slandered in popular fiction mental disabilities that people have, because it's just like, i don't know man like you got you got you you definitely have heroes with depression and and, but you never get you never get some superheroes with bpd um so anyway uh that was predictable i i it was interesting sort of like watching how you see you this because intrinsically like dex is a sociopath Mm -hmm. so it's interesting like harm reduction psychology um but what do you think about yeah like what are your thoughts about dex and bullseye in this series i
1: sort of loved watching uh fisk know how to manipulate him Mm. and at the same time reveal something very true about himself um which is like he tells the story uh of how he killed his father and how his mother like hung on to the evidence in order to protect him um first as a way of establishing dominance Over a dangerous man by saying like, look, I'm the kind of guy who, when I was a little boy, you know, caved his his father's head in. I'm not afraid of you. Um, And I'm as furious as you are. I understand you. And I recognize that what you want so desperately uh, is to live without shame and to live without uh, a feeling that you'll be accepted. By who you are and are beautiful uh, by who you are and you realize that like this is what Fisk gets not just from his mother but from Vanessa and like what motivates this very true very true love Um, and on the one hand it shows like Fisk in a sociopathic way uh, able to harness empathy for his own Mm -hmm. ends um in a way that uh kind of reveals like this very hidden motivation well, i guess not that hidden because like we see it with the um with the woman he stalks um but nevertheless like really really tells you a lot in an economic and elegant way about uh fisk's character as much as it tells you about about Dex's. um the, just the actor's portrayal was so fantastic. Um, it it felt very panicked. You you made the point earlier, Alana, that uh, a lot of the shots, particularly of like Daredevil in the in the church basement, are very claustrophobic. I definitely felt that a lot with the shots of, of Dex. That like
0: mm-hmm.
1: it, it made like it's directed to inspire uh, like a general feeling of anxiety. Uh, that that you're you're overwhelmed. Events are closing in on you. You're about to be exposed. You're vulnerable. You can't see uh, the next move. And and just like the the degree to which like it prompts this character to lash out. Um, I you know I appreciate the subtle you know maybe not so subtle uh, critique of like this would be a place you know the FBI would be a place that someone like this would would seek to work. Um, I don't, um, you know, I don't really know that that's true. Um, yeah,
0: they, they do more of a background check, but the military totally, they'll let in anybody. Um, and the police in most places in the country, I don't think would have bothered or known either way. But the FBI, like they know, if they know that Nadine has debt issues, yes. then they sure as hell would know that Dex has this childhood history of being emotionally disturbed yes and maybe killing and killing someone
1: there's there's a way yeah. i could kind of no prize this but it's a uh, do it it's super obscure um so i wrote a story uh in like february of 2017 uh for the guardian about how in particular um middle eastern fbi employees but basically like non-white it's it's also like the case for uh for chinese uh Americans and 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 um, nationalized uh, Chinese Americans um, who come to work for the FBI, um, but basically like there is just and this is an outgrowth of being such a wide organization, uh, there is an outgrowth of uh, the FBI's Office of Personnel Review. It's basically like their kind of like internal affairs, for lack of a better for lack of a better term, that just basically like keeps. Uh, non-white in particular, Middle Eastern and and Chinese uh, extracted employees under more or less permanent scrutiny um, in a way Mm. that just simply doesn't apply to white employees. If I were inclined to try and no prize like why it is that they're so attentive to Nadine's debt, but not to the fact that like this sociopathic incipient mass killer uh, work out of the same office, that would be the way you would do it. Uh, with the with the so called yeah. office of personnel review,
0: and and not to be clear, there I think that one of the appeals of joining any kind of law enforcement organization is the ability to kill people. So I am not saying that that, but that generally they don't want to hire people who are sociopaths because they're hard to control and you can't really like, you know, they'll go do things like what Dex did, which is not really what they at all intended, um, mm-hmm. endangering the lives of other of other other uh agents etc so um
1: it's definitely opr um i forget exactly what um sorry this was a a march 2017 piece um i forget exactly what opr stands for um but it's opr
0: cool that absolutely makes sense absolutely makes sense um so what? What kind of like New York moments did work? Like really worked for you oh, this season, if there were any?
1: Can I just? I, I don't have one that really worked. I have one that really doesn't. Uh, Do it. And I want to. I want to point this one out. Um, so like the Hell's Kitchen that they're trying to conjure up in in Daredevil just like hasn't existed for pretty much thirty years. Yeah. So you know. It's hard to tell a Daredevil story that isn't a Hell's Kitchen story. The, you know, the names, you know, also make it, you know, completely irresistible. But, like, Hell's Kitchen is is incredibly bougie. Like, there's no way that it can be what the thing is. So, there's been, like, a lot of sprawl uh, in, you know, in this series. For, like, sometimes Hell's Kitchen is basically all of New York. Mm-hmm. And uh during one such scene uh Dex is stalking the woman he used to work with um who ends up like waiting tables at uh the the hotel where where they've got Fisk um, and she goes to get a slice of pizza at DeFares in Midwood now DeFares uh Used to be this is one of like now.
0: Oh, it's supposed to be real Ferras. Yeah, no, you know, it's not supposed there. to be real deferas. Oh, it's it's De Ferras. Okay. Like, they
1: film it there. Like, that is but you the You can't get that front. slice there. That's on Avenue J. But, but like, you, you
0: can't get that slice. You can't get a chicken broccoli slice.
1: You definitely cannot. Like, that's that's yeah. No, yeah. that's that's a offensive to me. B, when I was a little boy, um. I would like DeFares was a neighborhood joint. Like this was just, you know, a place where you knew you could get like a really good slice of pizza, but like you would get a slice of pizza for like a dollar twenty-five in like 1987, like that kind of thing. And like, you know, you would talk to Dominic, like my mother knew him by, you know, by a first name basis, and so forth. And like, god damn it, DeFares is not in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> and I feel very strongly about this. Now DeFaris is is widely recognized as being, like, not just, like, one of the greatest pizzerias in New York City, but, like, possibly the country. I mean, look, if it's one of the greatest pizzerias in New York City, it is by default, you know, the greatest pizza in the country. Yes. Yeah. But like, De I mean, I've never
0: tried it. to even get a slice there because you, you, you the lines are batshit, shit. So I don't even try. But I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was supposed to be DeFara's. But I'm like, yeah, no, you can't get a chicken broccoli slice at DeFara's. That's not the kind of slice you can get. Now I would say, at most New York pizza places, you could get a chicken and broccoli slice. Like that's not like, even though it's not traditional, it is quite common. Um, but you couldn't get it there because that's a traditional place and you can't just get like whatever new concoction of since the late of, of the late 90s. For those for those, you know, for those
1: out there who've never experienced the pleasure of de Farence, like this is a place that's, you know, its, it's operator is, you know, this guy Dominic has been doing this, you know, since at least 40 years, like clearly more than very likely more than that. And like he grows his own basil plants in the window and will like snip basil off to put onto your to put onto your slice um and this used to be just like a regular neighborhood joint and now everyone recognizes uh that de is one of the best you know uh the best pizzerias that new york has to offer but god damn it it is not in hell's kitchen uh and mm-hmm. i i found myself <laughs> like just something like teeming with rage at <laughs> seeing this effrontery uh the audacity of doing that i'll give them uh you know the cemetery right by the Queens Midtown Tunnel, fine. Uh, I have no investment in that, but not to Faris.
0: I kept trying to place the hotel that they're having him in. I thought it was supposed um, to be the
1: Plaza, right?
0: Yeah, but it's like not. But I think that is supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I just figured. I, I, I'm what did? Mm.
0: I love the I love the intensity of the um, of the raid on the uh, on Fisk's convoy to uh the to the to the next secure location. That sequence I thought was just incredibly exciting. Actually, probably the most exciting action sequence for me in the series to be honest. Really? Even more so than well, I don't know, the hallway fight this season, not in the series, I'm sorry, this season. The hallway fight was pretty fucking amazing too, but I would I would put the opening um Fisk's convoy under attack thing really high up there for me and then i thought it was interesting at the end of the season we get this parallel which is the opposite of it which is nadine and daredevil trying to get through go, going in their own car convoy and trying to skate back Ooh. out to another location so i thought that was a really cool parallel but then when, in the end though when we saw the guy just coming out and killing like with the most casual grace the people who were assaulting him i i just i was like oh, that's Bill's eye. This is the most bullseye thing I've ever seen committed to camera,
1: yeah, I mean this
0: this utter mastery of physical skill and complete confidence.
1: Colin Farrell, you tried, but yep. uh no this was this was such a great bullseye that scene was tremendous. I genuinely think with maybe the exception of um of the prison fight scene, um like the the action sequences in season three were were as good as, if not better, than, than season one. Um, with the exception of that, you know, uh, you know, season one, episode two, uh, Yeah, Hollow the famous fight, Hall fight Which is scene. just like, yeah. that, that, that's, Iconic. that was, yeah, exactly. Like, that's not going to be surpassed, you know, anytime soon. Um,
0: it's its own genre But aside
1: now. from that, like the Daredevil on Bullseye fight, when Bullseye's in the Daredevil costume, I thought was really good. Uh, the Daredevil Melvin Potter fight uh, was really good. Um, yeah.
0: Daredevil really makes choices for other people in fucked up ways. like so often dooming do Melvin Potter. But the one that really got to me, it's like literally the first note that I took down, actually, was that poor guy who Daredevil, like well, sorry, Matt goes to see him in prison and he's like so close to being released and Matt pushes him for information, and that guy is forced to commit a violent act in order to not be seen, to throw all of, he spent all this time studying psychology in prison. Mm -hmm. He's like this close to being released, and he has to go punch somebody so that he can, so that he can make, so he doesn't look like a snitch. And like Daredevil put him in that situation. Daredevil threw that man's life away.
1: I mean, you, you saw it in season two with like Turk Barrett, where, like, mm-hmm. Daredevil kind of just casually ruins that guy's life again and again. Um, you know, you never, like, I, I always wondered why, like, you know, shouldn't one of the reasons, you know, like, ready-made in the Marvel Universe, why, like, supervillains are always getting out of jail? Like, it just use Daredevil as an excuse. Like, he's that good an attorney.
0: Yeah. I mean, how did you feel about the end of the season and what do you think would make sense for the show coming up? Oh, man. I thought that you the deal do... between Daredevil and Fisk at the end was a little bit, like, fraught. Like, I don't quite believe them, like, coming into an agreement. Do you know what I mean?
1: I'm going to be really honest with you and so honest that you might just want to edit this out. I don't remember mm-hmm. how this show ends.
0: That's legitimate response. Sorry. <laughs> there's the, ho- there's the, uh, the, the, the fight in his suite where... Uh, It's Bullseye versus Daredevil versus Kingpin. We get blood all over Rabbit and the snow painting, and like they basically like fight. Basically, Bullseye's presence is one of the things that keeps Daredevil from deciding to kill Fisk. But um... so Fisk
1: survives. Oh yes, is he back into custody or is he a free man?
0: He's he's going to go back. He's going back into custody. He's getting put into a car, and so and so is Vanessa. So did you like the way this ended? I thought, like, I, um, I think what they're doing with, with Dex moving forward is interesting. I feel like the certain amount of everything that's happened has returned to stasis in ways that, I don't know how to feel about, depends what happens next, I guess. But I thought that him making a deal with Fisk of that nature felt really unbelievable to me. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely believe that Daredevil may decide not to kill Fisk absolutely can believe that but i didn't quite believe the like okay i promise i won't tell anybody that vanessa um really was an accessory to the murder of agent nadine if you promise to what like go back to prison like it's not clear like the terms aren't clear enough
1: i felt this has been a problem with with fisk from the start that he's i i think we may disagree about this somewhat but like he doesn't seem sufficiently written as to be about anything. Like, we, we know he's got this ambition and this anger, and we can see his aptitude uh, for strategy, but, like, he has sort of this vague idea that, like, gentrification will make Hell's Kitchen better, and you don't really see him spin this up into much of a critique. It doesn't look like, you know, after season one, he sticks with that in any real way. Mm-hmm. And now, like in season three, he's he's just like this, you know, this really great gangster who suborns all of these, you know, what or who suborns the FBI, basically. And I don't really know, like, kind of how much you know stock to put in, you know, when when like you know these two men are are making a deal at the end that you know, with the full caveat that. I don't really, you know, remember so well how this show ended. Yeah,
0: that says something. That says something. Um,
1: oh, so. yeah. I, I, um, our friend Scott Shields wrote in, um, and
0: asked. Oh, yes. Thank you.
1: Yeah. How we would feel about, like, the prospect that, you know, Dinofrio's Fisk, uh, you know, will probably never appear with Spider Man. I'm really hoping that, like, whatever it is this uh disney streaming platform that they're creating like kind of like episodic you know perhaps tv like content for uh like they're doing the um they're doing like a I think a winter soldier and falcon show they're doing a low show yeah
0: that's crazy to me like they're going to have the the big madonna actors like finally just doing that that's wild
1: well i mean i hope they recognize that like If there's any way at all to give to give like a four episode um, street level Spider-Man story, please, please, please do that. And please put Fisk in it like a Spider-Man Daredevil would be so tremendous. Um, This is, you know, pure, you know, you know, fanboy wish casting. Um, But, you know. It's truly Spider-Man who's, you know, the, the, the fulcrum character that could get you from, you know, the MCU to the Netflix Marvel Universe, basically mm-hmm. from, you know, you know scale up from cosmic and scale down to street level. Um, and, you know, who would be better uh, to bounce Tom Holland off than, than Vince D'Onofrio?
0: And it's this tiny, youthful person who's like trying for the best in the world versus this like giant abstract yeah sort of like figure that's like looks like a he's like, he's like a he's like a granite sculpture right and like spider-man is so small and so elastic they could not be physically more different
1: and just like the you know what i love so much about the the spider-man kingpin relationship is that like the one thing Spider-Man can never be is cynical, and that's all Fisk is.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And those definitely are like the two characters who are like most connected to um. To to Fisk, it's just, he's. A, I mean, he ultimately, I think of him most as being a Daredevil villain, but very much Spider-Man as well. Yeah. You know,
1: it's interesting because you know, if I'm not mistaken. Like, most of the the Spider-Man-Kingpin relationship occurs when, like, Spider-Man grows up. Like, Peter Parker grows up and, like, isn't a teenager anymore. Which is, when you think about it, a really weird and kind of unique creative decision in comics where, like, the status quo is these characters kind of stay the same age forever. Like, Spider-Man is Mm -hmm. the only character I can think of where, like, the creators deliberately and early on, like, age him in real time. And then keep him at an age that isn't really his optimal age. Like, I sort of feel like Spider-Man works best when it's, you know, a teenage superhero. And, like, that's one of the reasons, like, the films kind of, you know, constantly go back to that well. But, like, most of the time we've seen Spider-Man, we've seen him as, like, a kind of, like, broke-as-a-joke young adult. Um, Yeah. And, like, that's how he relates to, in most stories I can think of, Kingpin. But, like... You know, Kingpin, Vince D'Onofrio versus a teenage Spider-Man is, like, kind of terrifying. Like, you would be afraid for Spider-Man in that kind of Absolutely.
0: Matchup. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Even though Spider-Man's got, like, all the powers and Kingpin does technically not. Yeah.
1: So we just wrote some um, fanfic. I, you know, obviously I have no reason to believe, you know, that this is even feasible.
0: Um, that will come to pass. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, like, that that's a fun thing to think about.
0: Go team! <laughs> um... So, uh, oh, gosh, there's like one other like what were your you and I are actually in some ways not the right people to have this conversation. But I feel like it can't go unstated that there's this Miss 45 m- moment with um, uh, with Karen pulling a gun on the young people who are street harassing her. And that was an interesting sort of litmus test when I was seeing people's responses to that scene.
1: Yeah, I felt like they just shouldn't have done that. Like it 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 made me kind of like un like like uncomfortable that they decided to make that like like white lady harassed by, by non white youth. Yep. What did, what did you think?
0: Yep, that's what I thought. Um you know, and uh I just like I it felt really like they've done a lot of weird racial stuff with Karen page and the way that they've juxtaposed her to other characters. Um, and this was not a helpful piece of that at all, but you know, I, it, Karen as a gun owner is an important thing to remind people of. It didn't necessarily have to be done with her threatening teenagers though. Right. Yeah. There's,
1: and like, I don't know. Um, it's one of the ways in which uh, translating from the source material of, of, of like Daredevil in like, you know, the hangover of the, you know, Death Wish or Dirty Harry era. Um, mm-hmm. That's very much the case in, in Born Again. Just like mm, that doesn't that doesn't work for today. Like, I don't think Karen ever did that scene um in in born again but like that felt more like you know a frank miller scene than than a you know netflix daredevil scene if that makes sense
0: yeah no that's that that's about right well thank you for for joining us i i've been really excited to talk about this show with you um as always, I I wanted to actually shout out one of the things that I read from another critic that really made me smile. I'm sorry I didn't get my act together to get us all on the same show at the same time, but Meg Downey had written like like right when the show came out, they were like marathoning this the series before I had an even opportunity to watch like a episode, but but Meg had written. Like, here we have a scene where it's like, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the exact one, so apologize. Apologies, Matt. Matt wandering around a church basement full of sculptures of angels, and the show isn't even playing Come to Life by Evanescence. <laughs> I'm glad that's well appreciate that. And it made me think, though, like, <laughs> this show does not use popular music at all. And really, it's, like, basically only uh, Luke Cage that has done that. And I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss that.
1: Um, I guess as we're signing off. First off, thank you so much for having me to talk about this. I had a great time, and I love talking about this stuff with you. Um, but um, I think that Iron Fist season two is better than Daredevil season three. I'm I. I, I, I oh, oh. Did you watch Iron Fist season two? No. So no, I did not. Iron Fist season one, like I couldn't get through it. Like I couldn't. I couldn't watch right. it at all. It was terrible. No. And, like, yeah. it was laughable. Iron Fist yeah. Season 2 is good. It fixes... It, 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 it fixes a whole lot of what's wrong in Season 1 in a hurry to the point where you're not, like, constantly distracted by how much, like, you, you hate Finn Jones, Danny Rand. Um, it takes... I won't ruin it for you a decision at the end that's so tremendously bold that it makes me sad that this show that I thought was a complete joke got canceled.
0: I think I'm aware of what that thing is, but I'm surprised that you found that the whole series was worth it to put in the hours on, so...
1: Season, not series. Season.
0: Oh, sorry, right, season. I, yeah. this,
1: season two is very good. I was, I was surprised by how much I... I I liked it, like first I stayed with it and then I was like, this is actually paced pretty well. It's not, you know, it's too many episodes by far. But um, I was surprised by how good it was. And, you know, maybe that's a function of how, you know, everyone's expectations were were just, you know, beneath the basement uh, for that show. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't watch Punisher. Um I watched like two, I. I watch like two and a half episodes of it. Some friends of mine, um, particularly those who would who have like kind of our uh critique of the Punisher character, have, have let me know that it's actually a good season. I should give it a shot, but I can't yeah. make myself it. Yeah, to do I've had it, a, a couple
0: people mm-hmm. Thank you, Spencer. Thank let you. Let our Oana. listeners know where we can check out your work. Uh
1: uh you can read me it's... uh at thedailybeast.com. Um most uh, most weeks I'll be, uh, you know, I'll have at least one piece about, you know, reported national security news up there. Uh, and for um, a whole lot of wasted time and nonsense, you can find me on Twitter at Attackerman.
0: Excellent. And I am Ilana Levin. I am on Twitter far too much as Ilana underscore Brooklyn. And obviously we're at graphicpolicy.com for all your comics, news and reviews all the darn time really excited to announce i'm going to be interviewing stephanie hans and kieran gillen very soon early december about the about the new series die hell yeah Uh, absolute favorites of mine um and more cool stuff to come so thank you for joining us and as we like to say in graphic policy keep it geeky